you have a Bible, now would be a great time to turn to the book of 1 Samuel as we continue a series of messages on the life of David, a man after God's own heart, which is what David became after God searched for him and found him. And David, uh, as we have been following him for the last several weeks, is in hot uh, escape from uh, another person who's in hot pursuit, that would be Saul, the present king of Israel, whose kingdom and kingship is over, but he still possesses the throne and the authority, and he's doing everything within his power to kill David, and you can only, as a human being, take that pressure so long. Uh, we were not made to handle that level of stress in our lives. And David, of course, this was training for him to learn how to rely and depend upon the Lord, but it was extremely excruciating and difficult. And so what I wanted to do was talk about the subject of doubt today. I think many Christians are plagued with doubt or doubts about certain things regarding the Christian faith. And I want us to examine that today. Uh, it's more common than you think. But it's almost like a, a dirty little secret we all keep because we're ashamed to say, I may have some doubts about some of what uh, all of us say we believe. And so today we want to look at that, uh, hopefully in an honest way with integrity. But the basis of this sermon is David himself experienced these kind of doubts. He had been anointed and promised the kingdom, and he had experienced in his life everything but that singular reality. God had said to him, you will be the king of Israel. You are my guy. You are my choice. You are the anointed one. You are the one uh, that I want to be king. And yet the reality of the fulfillment of that promise has not yet happened to David, and David begins to, under the exhaustion and stress of the moment, begins to experience the paralysis and panic of doubt. And I think he finds a lot of brothers and sisters. By the way, nobody in the Bible is your hero but Jesus. All the rest of us are struggling sinners saved by the grace of God. So hear now the word of the Lord as I read out of chapter 26, verses 17 through 20, and then 27, uh, verse 1. So in 26, 17 through 20. Well, let's begin in verse 16. This thing you have done is not good. As the Lord lives, you deserve to die because you've not kept watch over the, your Lord, the, uh, the Lord's anointed. And now we see where the king's spear is and the jar of water that was at his head. So Saul recognized David's voice and said, Is this your voice, my son David? And David said, It is my voice, my lord, O king. And he said, Why does my lord, that is Saul, pursue after his servant? For what have I done? What evil is on my hands? Now therefore let my lord, the king, hear the words of his servant. If it is the Lord who has stirred you up against me, may he accept an offering. But if it is men, may they be cursed before the Lord, for they have driven me out this day, that I should have no share in the heritage of the Lord, saying, Go, serve other gods. Now, therefore, let not my blood fall to the earth away from the presence of the Lord, for the king of Israel has come out to seek a single flea, like one who hunts a partridge in the mountains. And so David is lamenting before Saul that you are trying to drive me out of the kingdom and drive me out of the land. And so we find in chapter 27 and verse 1 the following. Then David said in his heart, Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There's nothing better for me that I should escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel, and I shall escape out of his hand. And so David literally goes in exile. He leaves Israel, goes into Philistia, which is uh, the Philistines descended from the Egyptians, and is so, again, God's anointed one going to Egypt. 
and hopefully will triumphantly return back to the land, as did many others. This is God's word. Let us pray. Father, we do pray today that you will speak to us in power and in clarity, that you will enable the one who preaches to preach your word with confidence and with joy. And we pray that our hearts would be receptive to the truth of God's word. We know that in all of us there's a bent, there is a crookedness, there is a defensiveness toward being told what to do by anyone or anybody. And we know that the only thing that can overcome that in us is the power of the Holy Spirit. And so we pray he would be free to work in us that which is well-pleasing in your sight. And we pray this in the name of our one and only Lord and Master, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. And so sometimes in life, along with David, it feels like, it feels like our faith is sort of slipping away from us. And so the essence of this sermon is how do I handle doubts about what I believe? What do I do with doubt? And there are three things we're going to talk about during the course of this message. Number one, we're going to distinguish different kinds of doubt because they're not at all the same. Number two, we're going to trace the source of doubt. And then number three, we're going to face our doubts and fears, and then we will be done. But by way of introduction, I just want to tell you that today I hope I encourage those of you who are in the faith by the truth of God's Word. But here is a reality each one of us needs to face. Even with many good, compelling reasons to believe, every believer will at one time or another struggle with the issue of doubt. There will be times, and maybe you've already experienced them yourself, when you wonder whether everything you believe is just a lie, it's just made up, it's fantasy. Maybe we're the ones who are deceived, you might think, and all of the critics, maybe they're right. Maybe we're the ones who are deceived, maybe all the critics are right. Maybe this Jesus thing is just a religious experience that in reality is no better or worse than the experience of Buddhists, Hindus, and Muslims. Put simply, maybe we're just wrong. Maybe we're not right about it. Now, I know that some of you get a sinking feeling when you hear me talk that way because you said, how are you going to get me out of this, right? But uh, yeah, that's the goal of the message. But I want you to feel it. I want you to feel the shadow of doubt over you. Now, there's sorts, uh, all sorts of doubts that can be very weighty in our experience. And sometimes they can be extremely painful to work our way through. It can feel like our whole life, our whole identity, and even our whole future hangs in the balance. What we're hoping in may not be so. So with such doubts, while such doubts are really tough, enough to handle in and of themselves, they are exacerbated or multiplied by our current cultural crisis and climate. You do realize, and I know you do, if you, have your, if you don't have your head down in the sand and you don't live in a cave blindfolded somewhere, you are aware that we live in a post-Christian culture. There was a time in the... Um, organization of this country and the history of our country where the dominant worldview regarding all elements of life and culture were founded upon the Judeo-Christian worldview, the scriptures, the law of God and the Old Testament. And that was pretty much true north. That was pretty much the compass that guided the development and um, culture uh, making in all of this country and now that has since been departed from it's not just that's an okay choice if you want to make it but now it's rather let's destroy every this vestige and image of it because it is the cause of all of our troubles and all of our ruin and I predict ultimately in time we as a church will begin to feel that we will begin to feel that more pointedly and more powerfully as our culture continues to move away from its roots and we will experience persecution first on just uh, 
what I would call general levels, but it will get fairly specific fairly quickly, it seems. Now, many voices today, even so-called Christian voices, insist that the problem with Christians is that they are far too certain about what we believe. Uh, indeed, certainty is now viewed as the supreme vice, and doubt is now presented as the ultimate virtue. It seems to be skeptical these days is really the uh, reason for virtue signaling your unbelief and doubt before the world. You're really cool now if you're not really too sure about anything, okay? There is no certainty about anything, and so we're all just floating in a sea of uncertainty with uh, no anchors, Indeed, certainty is now viewed as a supreme vice, and the epitome of intellectual sophistication, we have been told, is to question everything you believe. That's called skepticism in philosophy, to question everything you believe, which of course backfires, because you would also have to question your own questioning. And uh, that's just ridiculous when you think about it. Uh, this group will cheer on your doubts, encouraging you to leave behind any confidence you might have in the truth of Christianity. On the flip side, other, sides of other uh, segments of Christianity heap scorn on anybody who's ever had the slightest doubt. They'll tell you that good Christians never struggle with what they believe. You have to just accept everything you're told, no questions asked. Uh, simply, we are told to just believe. Don't even deal with people's objections to or concerns regarding Christianity. With these two competing perspectives out there, it is easy to feel caught in the middle. I remember that song, Stuck in the Middle with You. Well, that's just kind of where our culture is. It's stuck in the middle between these two extremes. But thankfully, these are not our only two options. And what I hope to do in this sermon is to lay a path forward for you, a better path than either one of those two options. And those two options would be the virtue of doubt, and the other would be the absolute denial of doubt. And somewhere in between there, or actually a third thing altogether, is how we should deal and handle with doubt. So, the next thing I would tell you is that if you doubt, no, there's nothing seriously wrong with you. The first thing to get on the table is doubts do not necessarily make you a bad Christian. I know sometimes it can feel like they do. Whenever we question our beliefs, we can be begin to think that we have failed in some colossal way. Perhaps we're just, you know, second class, second tier kinds of believers. We feel like we've let God down as well as family and friends and we might even look at the great heroes of the faith and marvel as how they always seem to be so sure and steady in their faith. If only we could be more like them we, we may perhaps think at times but here's the reality. Even the great heroes of our faith struggled with doubt. You remember of course doubting Thomas in the Gospels who said, unless I put my hand in the scars on his hands or his, his side, I will not believe. There was one who followed Jesus for three years who struggled with doubt. Consider the great reformer Martin Luther. It is easy uh, to marvel at the kind of strength, shall I say guts and fortitude, this guy had courage in the face of un speakable opposition, but you may not know that he struggled intensely with serious doubt and despair a large portion of his life. He struggled. What we might call the dark night of the soul. Luther called it a German term, and I, I, I don't know German well. You can correct me if I mispronounce this, but I'm going to try. It's called Anfektungen, right? That sounds German, doesn't it? And I didn't make it up. I read about it. But Luther struggled constantly with doubt. What if I'm wrong? What if I'm wrong and all the, reform, all the uh, magisterial uh, authorities of the church at that time are right? And what if I'm wrong? And he, he debated this often within himself and struggled uh, over and over again and again. And uh, Luther doubted his own faith 
He doubted his calling. He even wondered whether God had turned his back on him. So intense were his doubts that he labored through tears and anxiety and had deep bouts of deep depression. His friend Philip Melanchthon even feared Luther was on the verge of death. The great 19th century preacher, the Prince of Preachers, that great Baptist preacher C.H. Spurgeon was the same. Though it's easy when you look at him to be impressed by his preaching skills, the enormous size of his church, uh, the extensive ministry, Spurgeon had his own seasons of doubt. Um, on, uh, at one point, he confessed a struggle. He said this, On a sudden, the thought crossed my mind, which I abhorred, but could not conquer, that there was no God, no Christ, no heaven, no hell, that all my prayers were but a farce, and that I might as well have whistled to the winds or spoken to the howling waves. In fact, Spurgeon struggled with deep depression and anxiety for much of his life over these matters. So here's the point. It is normal to struggle with doubt in the Christian life. It doesn't necessarily mean there's something deeply wrong with you. The issue is not whether you face doubt, it's how you respond to the reality of doubt. Doubt's like fear. And doubt and fear are closely related. But you're going to have fear in your life. How do I know you're going to have fear in your life? Because God says a jillion times in the Bible, do not be afraid. He's assuming what? We're going to be afraid. He's assuming we're going to have doubts. Because we still carry around with us that fallen nature, which questions everything and believes nothing. So let's talk about different kinds of doubt. I want to do that quickly. What do we mean by the word doubt itself? Well, it'd probably be good if we got a definition, right? We can begin with what doubt is not. Doubt is not the same thing as unbelief. Unfortunately, many Christians equate the two, which is why they feel so guilty about their doubts. They assume it means that they are rebels, people who just stubbornly refuse to believe God. But this misconception needs to be done away with once and for all. Doubt is not the same thing as being an unbeliever. What then is doubt? The social critic and writer Oz Guinness offers us a helpful definition. Here's his definition. Doubt is a state of mind in suspension between faith and unbelief so that it is neither of them holy and is each only partly. In other words, doubt is a form of wavering. It's a form of being of two minds about something. And while doubt is not the same thing as unbelief, it may lead to unbelief if unchecked. Thus, the scriptures consistently call us away from doubt toward our faith. When Jesus uh, describes the way we should pray, he says, have faith and do not doubt. And James tells us that doubting can lead to a very unstable life. Let, uh, James tells us, let a man ask in faith without doubting, for the one who doubts is like the wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. In short, doubt can be a hindrance to our faith. Indeed, it can be quite serious, left unchecked, but it's not the same thing as a lack of faith. And God is very patient with those who struggle with doubt. Jesus himself was very long-suffering with the doubts of his disciples, uh, showing great patience with Thomas, as I told you earlier, who insisted that he would not believe until he put his hands in Jesus' side. And so, with the definition in hand, now let's look at two species, as it were, of doubt. The first, and perhaps the main kind of doubt that people experience, is doubt about the truth of Christianity. Doubt about the truth of Christianity. Such doubts might involve questioning the core beliefs such as the reliability of the Bible, the reality of the bodily resurrection of the dead, of Jesus Christ, the deity of Jesus, or maybe even the existence of God himself. These doubts are more intellectual in nature, though as we shall see, they can be caused by a variety of factors, some of which are circumstantial and some of which are emotional. The good news about this sort of doubt is that there are more straightforward, concrete ways to address it. 
If a person has genuine intellectual questions regarding the faith, we have great resources available to answer such questions. Often when I run into a person who has intellectual doubt, they make the mistake of believing that nobody's ever had these questions before. They're the first one that's ever had a question about the reality of Christian doctrine. No, you're standing in a <laughs> thousands of year length a line of people who have raised exactly the same questions you raised. There's nothing new under the sun. There's nothing new. Nothing. I agree with uh, the wisdom writer Solomon on that. Uh, it's good company to be agreeing with, by the way. And so, because of a variety of factors, uh, people struggle with doubt. And uh, this doesn't mean that people's doubts are automatically cured, as it were, by simply reading a few books. But sometimes gaining a basic understanding of the facts can go a pretty long way. Sometimes people have just never heard a solid answer to the question they have uh, gnawing at them inside. Unfortunately, other kinds of doubts are much more complex and difficult to deal with. But before moving on, a clarification is in order. As we try to overcome intellectual doubts and achieve a, a level of certainty about what we believe, that doesn't mean that we must be equally certain about every belief we hold. There are core truths that demand more certainty than more peripheral ones. If you have doubts about the proper mode of baptism, whether you immerse, sprinkle, or pour, or even the subjects of baptism, uh, then surely that is not the same thing as having doubts about whether or not Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. Questioning the former should be an occasion of a little anxiety, whereas questioning the latter can have serious consequences on the Christian life if left unchecked. But there's a second kind of doubt. Rather than questioning the truthfulness of Christianity, sometimes we use the word doubt to describe how we are struggling with some aspect of the Christian life. It might involve feeling like you don't understand God, or you're confused by a particular doctrine, or you want to know why God did or did not do something you were expecting Him to do or not do in your life. This kind of doubt also entails doubt about ourselves. Am I really a Christian? Does God really love me? Is he really going to provide for my needs? This second kind of doubt is also prevalent in the Bible. Indeed, it could be understood more as a form of struggle or worry or anxiety or even fear. Consider the Apostle Paul, the greatest Christian who ever lived by most uh, as a consensus anguished over a thorn in his flesh that God sent to him, a messenger of Satan to buffet him. In other words, God sent to him a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to buffet. You know what buffet somebody means? It's to take your fist and pummel them till they become pulp. And Paul prayed three times that the Lord would remove this thorn of flesh from his life. It was killing the quality of his spiritual experience, killing uh, the contentment that he may have tried to experience in any way in this life. And he asked God three times to remove the thorn, and God answered him, no, I have something better than the removal of the thorn. My grace is sufficient for you. That was not the answer Paul was looking for. That was not probably the answer Paul wanted, but that was the answer he got. And so it was a painful crisis, but God refused to remove it. And the psalmist also expresses a similar sort of struggle. Bad things happen sometimes to us, and God seems distant, far away. It seems like he doesn't care. It seems like he's not there. It seems like the heavens are brass. And so along with the psalmist, we may be tempted to say, as we feel abandoned by God, Awake! Why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. You ever been good and angry at God? I don't know if it's being good, but I mean good and angry. Have you ever struggled with trying to understand why certain things are happening to you? Uh, we should observe that the second kind of doubt isn't always necessarily sinful. 
It's often just part of life in this crooked, fallen world that is not the way it's supposed to be. In creation, God ordered and uh, created and formed and filled creation. And at the end of that, God was well pleased. He rested on the seventh day, took pleasure in what he had made. And the world and creation itself was the way it's supposed to be. And by the time we get to Genesis 3, Adam and Eve sin, and the world is no longer the way it's supposed to be. And so sometimes when you're struggling with the way things are, you're struggling with the echoes of the fall in Eden resonating throughout time uh, immemorial until Jesus comes back and totally fixes it. And he started to fix it as, as his resurrection from the dead tells us. But one day he will return and set all things right. But regardless, we also need to fight against this doubt too. It can wreak havoc on our Christian life if left unchecked it can result in despair discouragement or even depression moreover this second kind of doubt can actually lead to the first kind of doubt the two are intertwined not necessarily separated so now let's begin to trace the source of doubt yeah I know it's point two and I know we got three points so you need to listen faster so I can get through okay so why do Christians doubt and what can explain why some Christians are more prone to doubt, let us say, than others? The answer to those questions are certainly lengthy and complex. They're not simple. But we can at least explore a few of the main reasons why some people doubt so that we can begin mapping out how we're going to respond to people in our families, in our network of friends, in our church, uh, our work associates, our school classmates, we can know how to respond to them when they, and if you don't live a genuine, authentic, open, grace-filled, gospel-driven Christian life, they're never going to ask you anyway. Because what they're expecting from you is what? Condemnation. How in the world could you say you doubt this? Well, there are ways. Some people's doubts center on real, unanswered uh, intellectual questions about Christianity. They may have the questions, but nobody's ever given them solid answers. Thus, they have labored through the Christian life with a faith that is weak and sh shaky. Uh, so how, for example, a person may look at the Bible, which we claim uh, sola scriptura is the source of authority for the church. It is the standard by which uh, everything we believe and practice is measured by. It is the ultimate truth in our worldview as Christians. And yet some people begin to doubt that because they'll raise questions like, and some of these are New Testament scholars and others, how do you explain thousands of textual variants? In other words, I don't want to get into this too much, but we have different manuscripts or pieces of manuscripts from different traditions and times in the history of the church, and they don't agree on every single word well which one is right and how do I know we can believe anything in the Bible let me let me just say this and leave it alone nothing has been scrutinized nothing has been examined with more severity than God's Word far more than any other document ever written uh, by both we believe God and man and it has withstood the test of time nobody it's it's like a 90 9.3% accuracy level. And so when someone begins to question that, it's just because they've never heard anybody bring up the argument. And I doubt that many of you have taken a course in textual criticism. And so when you hear those questions, or you read a book by somebody who's discovered again how to destroy Christianity, what about apparent contradictions in the gospel? I'll tell you what, there aren't any. How can Christianity be the only right religion? Why is Christianity so exclusive? Why does Jesus say, I am the way, the life, and the truth? No one comes to the Father but by me. Why did my sister get cancer? Why are my prayers not answered? Why do I not know who my parents are? Or why is my life like it is in the present? How do I know I'm really saved? These are, of course, doubts 
that are, of, are that could this can be a source of serious doubts. But a second one is called immoral behavior. And in my judgment, this one is sort of uh, never discussed, but seems to be always present. Believe it or not, one of the most common causes of people's doubts, especially in regard to their faith, is they are engaged in behavior that the Bible plainly forbids. This can be, of course, the case for believers who head off to college and discover for the first time they are free from the shackles of home and that they are free to be out there and enjoying it. And so they get pulled into all kinds of situations that maybe they don't have a lot of experience with. And because of that, they find themselves beginning to doubt the faith because of their participation in things like sleeping with their boyfriends or getting drunk at parties or taking drugs or indulging in all kinds of behavior that is inconsistent or rebellious against Scripture. It's almost inevitable that such behavioral change is followed by a change in belief. At least the beginning of it. The people who begin to say things like, I'm not so sure I believe God in God anymore because the church I go to doesn't believe in the legitimacy of homosexuality. While we understand why people are drawn to that, while we are sympathetic as fellow sinners, we do not believe that God's Word gives that to us as an option. And yet, when they go away to college, that's just like in the canon. That is a, a given uh, on every campus in which uh, most people go to school. Um, and so that affects people's beliefs. Or I'm not really sure I think the Bible's true anymore. Or a key principle is it's not just that belief affects behavior, but also behavior affects belief. When we don't obey God, we begin to doubt God. Indeed, if we don't obey God, we begin to fight against God, and he can feel like an enemy rather than a friend. I mean, how, how, how can you trust in someone you're in a fight with? You just can't. And so that kind of doubt creeps in. And so uh, one of the things that it tells me uh, as a pastor of a church is we have to do a better job than we've been doing uh, arming our children with solid uh, reasons for belief uh, before they go away to school. Um, and, and that's, there's got to be a commitment to that because they're going to be attacked and assailed from every direction. Another uh, source of doubt might be profound suffering, the death of a loved one, health problems, financial difficulty, broken relationships, anything that causes pain can be a source of doubt. In the midst of that pain, it's easy to wonder whether God is real or whether Christianity actually works for me and whether it has any meaning at all. What that often does is expose how shallow our grasp of the gospel is. Irrational worry. Some Christians doubt because they doubt just about everything in life that there is. They get on a plane, they doubt they're going to arrive safely at their destination. I know we're going to crash. They get fired from their job. Stories of Jesus, are they really true? For those who struggle with deep-seated anxiety, and these sorts of questions all kind of jumble together, and if they worry about most things, and it's likely at some point they will also worry about their faith. A very sensitive person can be challenged this way, but keep in mind, that this sort of irrational worry is not so much intellectual as it is emotional. The doubt is not caused by a lack of evidence, but exists in spite of very good evidence. I'm reminded of a line from C.S. Lewis's Screwtape Letters, where the senior de demon writes to his nephew Wormwood about how to create doubts in the minds of believers. Realizing that intellectual doubts were not working, screw tape suggests another course of action. But there's a sort of attack on the emotions which can still be tried. It turns on making him feel that all his religion has been a fantasy. Now I have to tell you, I've been a preacher now for 40-something years. 78, 22, you do the math, is that 44 years? Maybe 54, I don't know. I didn't do it before I got here. But here's what I'll tell you. 
I have been driving in the car or walking outside or laying in the bed and all of a sudden it flashes before my eyes. What if all this is just a joke? What if all this is just an illusion? What if you're up here preaching and telling people stuff that's not true? And, and, uh, but you have to understand that involved in this dynamic is also spiritual beings who are not of God. They are called demons. And that we live in a state and siege of spiritual warfare where the enemy of our souls, a personal being, dispatches his minions to do their work on our minds, which is why the whole armor of God in the book of Ephesians chapter 6 talks about the helmet of salvation which you wear over your head to protect you from the darts of doubt that are constantly coming your way. Sometimes doubts are just part of spiritual warfare. And they can happen that way. That can be a source of it. And then you know how to deal with it by putting on the whole armor of God. But as we have seen, doubts are real and we have to learn to face our doubts and fears. It's just part of living the Christian life. It's not about but, but when, and when it happens, the key is to respond appropriately. Sitting back and doing nothing and letting our doubt fester or hope it just goes away is not an option. You have to be proactive in dealing with these doubts. And here's a few ways to do it. The first thing is don't isolate yourself. What's the first thing people do when they start to doubt God? They quit coming to church. Don't they? Doubt or depression creeps in a life, and the first thing you shut down is the only place you'll ever get help. But they stop coming to church. They quit reading the Bible. They stop sitting under the preaching of God's Word. And because of that, Doubt gets a pretty good grip on them. But don't go it alone. Don't go it alone. Everybody uh, is in need of a community. Everybody's in need of being connected. Uh, everybody should not wander off alone. On the contrary, you're safest when you are with others. And the same is true in the Christian life. When you're facing doubts and fears, the last thing you want to do is isolate yourself and struggle alone. Sometimes we do that because we don't think other people will understand our struggle. Or maybe we're embarrassed about it, or maybe we're sh ashamed about it, or maybe we don't want to talk about questioning our beliefs. But we have to be honest about our struggles and bring them into the light. And here's where the importance of Christian fellowship and Christian community is so essential. You need to let other people into your life. You need to learn to lean on other people and let them bear your burdens as well as bearing your own burdens. And, and God put them there. The church is to be a community. We are to bleed over onto one another. We are to bolster each other up. We're to buoy each other up. We're to encourage one another. We're to edify one another. We're to bear each other's suffering and doubts and fears. And to cut yourself off from that is sad. That's what the body of Christ is for, is the encouragement you need. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Friday morning, I took a shower. And usually on Friday morning, I take a shower, and then I go find my wife, and it's her time to take a shower. So you have to understand that all I had was a towel, and my house has saltillo tile. And so I rounded the corner to walk down the hallway to find my wife, and both feet flew up in the air. I'm 68 years old. Both feet flew up in the air, when I landed on my left bad leg, it totally buckled, and the rest of me slammed into the tile. And I thought of that verse, where's my wife to help me get up? First, you got to blame somebody. just feels better if you can blame somebody, right? But here I am laying in a heap on the floor, and when you get to be my age and you fall like that, you don't roll over and jump right up. You lay there a minute and think, okay, I've really done it this time. This is something I will not recover from. But I'm here. I have no cast, have no bruises. 
By God's grace, I was able to roll over and push myself up and move on, but it would have been really nice if I had a wife there at that moment. <laughs> I say, oh my gosh, are you okay? But when she found out about it, she said, oh my gosh, are you okay? She was out in the backyard playing where she was supposed to be. But anyway, you need somebody there to pick you up because you're going to fall. You are going to fall. You're going to have hard times. And then the next thing you need to do is study your faith deeply. What drives me nuts is this Christianity that seems to be prevalent in our country today that is 40 miles wide and a half inch deep. You need to get out of the shallow pool and play in the deep water a little bit. You need to learn the reasons for your faith. You need to be taught theology. You need to be trained in the truth. You need solid doctrine. And you need to be exposed to Christian apologetics, which helps and reinforces believers. There's a need for that. And if you're going to battle your doubts, you have to be committed to grounding yourself in at least the core beliefs of Christianity. Whether or not you ever accept so-called reformed distinctives, I think they're right, and I think they help you, especially with this issue of doubt, but at least be grounded in the core doctrines of our faith. If you think back, a lot of what causes our doubts is because we haven't done that deep study. And uh, we've just sort of skirted by on the surface, and um, because of that... We are shallow in our grasp of the gospel and in our grasp of the faith. Uh, David even says that uh, you can be comforted with great suffering by a deeper understanding of the nature of God. His goodness, his sovereignty, his purposes for evil can provide great hope and perspective. David says this when he says, Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, no evil shall be allowed to befall you, no plague come upon your tent. Here's the point. Good theology matters. It matters. A believer with a solid theological foundation is more able to handle these difficult questions than a person who has just a, a shallow, toe-tipped-in-the-water <laughs> uh, framework of belief. And good theology is not automatic. You have to study to get it. Got to be grounded. Another one is get wise counsel. Go and speak to people who've dealt with these doubts, who you know have dealt with yours. Don't avoid them. If you've got questions about your faith, go and share it with the pastor. Let me tell you that there's nothing you could say to me that I probably have never heard before. Unless you told me you went to the moon and ate green cheese. Nobody ever told me that. But uh, anything else, I've probably heard it before. You do this as long as I've done it, there, there are no surprises. And I know my own struggles, so I wouldn't be. But, or an elder, or a respected family member, or a deacon, or uh, a leader in the church, or a teacher in the church. But one of the most important things we've got to learn to do is doubt our own doubts. When we doubt the truth of Christianity, we often don't realize that we're doubting that truth because some other belief we hold has taken ascendancy. And in fact, when we are swapping one belief out for another, if so, then when we find ourselves doubting one of our Christian beliefs, we can fight back by challenging that belief that replaces it. Tim Keller provides a very helpful example here. Imagine you meet an atheist who turns out to be kind, happy, and moral. And this makes you doubt whether Christianity is really true. A little reflection will reveal that there's another belief that is feeding this doubt, namely the belief that atheists always ought to be bad, awful people. And since they're not bad, awful people, then you doubt your faith. Or you can run into other people. Listen, as Dan mentioned in Sunday school today, there's something called the Imago Dei, the image of God in man, but there's also something called common grace. And that God allows people who are in total rebellion to him to often accomplish very good things, even though their motives may be askew. Therefore, we can profit from that. We can learn from that. We can grow from that. But the issue is, as I'm trying to uh, drive home to you 
that's not a reason for grounding your faith that you're better people than others. What everybody wants in this world is a watertight argument for what they believe. Christians want it. Non-Christians want it. Atheists want it. Everybody wants a watertight. That is impossible. Because every belief you hold, whether you're sitting here, you're a Christian or not, whatever belief, whatever framework, uh, conceptual framework you have, whatever your world and life view is, whatever your epistemology is, everybody bases what they believe on propositions or truths that cannot be proven. Cannot be proven. Cannot be proven. Bertrand Russell, who was no friend to Christianity, he's a brilliant man, brilliant philosopher, was once asked the question, who, who was atheist, he especially did not like Christianity at all, wanted it done away with. Bertrand Russell was asked, what are you going to do if you die and go before God? Listen to what Bertrand Russell says. Not enough evidence. You didn't give me enough evidence. He says, so therefore I'm not guilty, and therefore I won't be judged. Isn't that the saddest thing you've ever heard? From a man so smart, uh, may not even be able to tie his intellectual shoestrings, but he says, no evidence. There's evidence everywhere. But what we need is not a watertight argument, or what we have is not a watertight argument that convinces everyone and leaves them all silent and stumped. What we need is what we have, a watertight person. And his name is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the ultimate apologetic for Christianity. Why? Because Jesus Christ is the sum and substance of Christianity. And so often our doubts and fears are just another way to be disconnected from Him. He is the one. So if somebody comes up with some elaborate argument that you can't answer, don't sweat it and don't worry about it. I've even said to other people, well, yeah, you know, that and $3 will get you a cup of coffee. That's what I say, because I'm a smart, you know what. But other times I simply say, laugh and go, you know, you're just one in the line of many, but you're never going to find truth that way. Truth is not an ideology or a concept or a framework of belief. Truth is a person. I am the way. I am what? The truth. No one comes to the Father but by me. So with that said, as I wrap the message up, we have to learn to grow from our, we have to learn to doubt our doubts, but we also have to learn to grow from our doubts. And while doubts seem like they can destroy us, don't forget that God may have other purposes for them. And as strange as it sounds, there's a certain spiritual death and a certain spiritual truth that we will never reach without going through an intense season of doubting and struggling. That's why Romans 28, 8, 28 is such a wonderful truth. It doesn't say that God uh, takes everything good and works it according to his purposes so that we'll be conformed to his uh, image of Christ. What it does say is that God takes everything good, bad, ugly, indifferent in the middle and uses it to work in us that which is well-pleasing in his sight. So even if you're going through a season of fear and doubt about your own salvation or whatever, God uses that to chisel in you, maybe even to equip you to be the next person who ministers to another person who doubts. But God always has a purpose. God always has a way of working that which is we're struggling with to that which makes us a... Uh, perfect uh, instrument or a good instrument, a powerful instrument in the life of others. When we push through a season, we can find ourselves often stronger on the other side of it. Some of the great saints of old have had to endure such trials so that they may prove faithful to the end. Even Jesus himself endured his own dark night of the soul. 
In the Garden of Gethsemane, he suffered greatly under the prospect of what laid before him in anguish even to the point of death. Of course, in the middle of such doubts, it's not always easy to see what God's ultimate purpose may be. Sometimes we can't see it until it's all over and we look back. But it's worth noting that when Martin Luther was in his darkest season of doubting, his Anfektungen, he was in his deepest season of doubting that he wrote his most famous hymn. You know what that is? Mighty Fortress is Our God. And that hymn, born out of a period of doubt and darkness, has strengthened millions of Christians across the world. So if you have your doubts, you have your struggles, we understand, we know, and we want to help. We want to encourage you. We want to be there for you. Please, if you have that struggle going on, don't isolate yourself. Don't do that. That will only reinforce and strengthen the power of those doubts. You think about what we've thought about today as you go home today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth and how it exposes us and shows us that we ain't all that, that we all have our struggles, we all have our fears, we all have our doubts, that our hearts can get so hard so fast. But we do pray that we will make ourselves avail uh, of the opportunities you provide for us to deal with these issues in our life. And give us as believers a great deal of patience and a strong memory of what it's like not to be a Christian as we deal with this in our own families, in our own church, and everywhere else we go. And we pray that we would, our eyes would be open to see that the greatest watertight argument for the faith is a person named Jesus. And this we pray in his name. Amen. We're also going to take an offering and we pray that God will bless that.